David is one of the biggest kings, the biggest characters in all of, of Scripture. Um, I've tried to pitch it as a camp theme, and that didn't go anywhere. I wanted to do it as a Bible class, and that didn't go anywhere. So, so when I got out my sermon plan for the year uh, and saw some open Sundays between now and March for Missions, I thought, oh, it's finally, this is my chance to do a deep dive on the life of David. And what I hope that you see in the, in the next coming weeks is that David is someone who has a heart for God. He's famously known as a man after God's own heart. But he is also a man who is deeply flawed. David makes many mistakes. Uh, he has many uh, occasions where he sins and rebels against God and does the wrong thing. He has times when he chooses his own benefit over others. And yet there's something about him uh, that is special in Scripture. There's something about him that, that God has this fondness for David. And in the midst of his life, of all of the things that are going on in David's life, I, I think there are so many lessons for us to learn. There are so many things that we can see what God is doing in David's life that can help us to maybe better understand what God might be wanting to do in our lives. Uh, David is surrounded by people, some who uh, challenge him, some who uh, are against him, and others that are for him. He has incredible friendships. He is someone who understands what it is to have a heart for worship. He's someone who wrote many of our psalms. He's someone who is a shepherd and tended sheep and fought lions and bears. He killed a giant. Uh, and, and there's so many stories about David. And what's interesting is for most of us, he's one of the characters in Scripture that we learn a lot about as children. And then we kind of say, yeah, I know the David story. He killed Goliath and he became king and, and you know, the Bathsheba thing and the other stuff. And we miss so many of the rich lessons that happen over and over again in the pages of David's life. And so in the coming weeks, I want us to really kind of jump into the David story, uh, the David uh, lessons that we can be learning. Uh, the story starts with the youngest son of a large family spending his days and nights out in a field watching sheep. And you need to know that the most typical way that a shepherd spends his time is doing almost nothing. It is a boring job almost all of the time. It's a task that often includes uh, walking from one place to another with sheep. It's a task that often includes sitting somewhere doing nothing with sheep. It's a task that includes looking up at the stars and, and, and maybe praying or thinking or reflecting with sheep. But the shepherd can't just live in the boredom. They can't live in the tedium. Uh, because every now and then, the job of a shepherd gets incredibly exciting. It gets incredibly dangerous. Because every now and then, you're not just sitting there walking the sheep from place to place. Every now and then, a lion shows up. Not in Oklahoma. Shepherds in Oklahoma have a different set of threats, I suppose. Uh, but in David's life, his job would go from boring to tedious to a lion fight. And the thing is, he had to be preparing in the boring moments for the lion fight, for the bear to show up out of the woods. He had to be ready for a thief to show up with the intent to take his sheep. And so one of the things a shepherd has to do is not take for granted all of the opportunities they have to prepare for the lion, to prepare for the bear to prepare for the sheep. And so David's story begins in these fields with sheep. 
And from those lonely fields, his story is one of incredible friendship, of great battles, of poetry and worship, of disappointment, of success and failure. Some of the greatest celebrations and most overwhelming failures in Scripture are in the pages that tell the story of David's life. In the midst of these incredible stories, there's so many lessons that we can pull out. Uh, We're going to be doing that in the coming weeks. But before we get to David and the king who came right before David, which is Saul, we need to kind of understand where we are in Israel's history. In Israel's history, for a long time, they didn't have any kings. Uh, In the book of Judges, it describes this time to us. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everybody did as he saw fit. And so we know about the Exodus, when Moses brings the people out of Egypt and into the Promised Land, and Joshua has the conquest, and there's the fall of the walls of Jericho. uh, And then the people scatter into this land that God has given them. And what we see during this time is there is no king. God's desire was that the people would view him as a king. God's desire was that they would turn to him as the one who gives them their laws and who protects them from harm and who provides all that they need. The things that a king does, God desired for them to look to him for. And then over and over again, what we see is that the people reject God in that role. They reject God and instead they worship other false gods. They choose immorality and they choose their own desires over God's desires. And so what happens is that in Israel, uh, there is a season where there's what we call the cycle of judges. And judges in our world are the people who wear the black robes, you know, Judge Judy. Uh, In the Old Testament, judges are very different. In the Old Testament, the judge's job was to be a military ruler who would set the people free from oppressors. Because over and over again, what happens in the time of Judges is that the people go from being faithful to God to being disobedient and unfaithful to God. And when they do that, God says, fine, if you don't want me, if you're going to reject me, I'm going to let you fall into the hands of other enemies and armies and oppressors. And so they would go into some form of bondage. And after a while of being in bondage, they would think, you know what's better than this? Is back when we were being faithful to God. And so the people would cry out to God and say, God, we are so sorry, rescue us from this oppressor. And when they would do that, God would send a judge. And the judge would show up and become a mighty military presence in Israel's, uh, in their world. And they would destroy the enemies. They would raise up sometimes armies. Sometimes they would just kill the enemy themselves. But they would raise up uh, Israel and they would get out of the oppressor's control. And after they had done this, it was their job to restore Israel to a place of faithfulness and a place of obedience. And often for the life of that judge, Israel would be obedient to God. And then that judge would die and they would move back into unfaithfulness. And so this cycle continues over and over again. And if you follow through the story of judges, each judge is not as successful as the one before them. So that at the end, the judges aren't doing a very good job of uniting Israel. The judges aren't doing a very good job of of calling people back to a relationship with God. They're still killing the enemies, but they're not doing a good job of bringing Israel back to a place of faithfulness. And At the end of that time, there comes a time that Samuel, who is the last of the judges, has two sons, and his sons are evil, and they're not going to be good at, at, at seceding him and leading Israel And the people go to Samuel and they say to him, we want a king. 
We want a king like all the other nations around us have. We want a king who will look over us and provide for us and who will protect us. We want someone who, who we can have the pomp and the ceremony and the fun of having a royal family in Israel. And so in that season, Samuel goes to God. And Samuel, when he gets there, uh, he goes to God and he says, God, I'm offended. This is Samuel. God, I'm offended that the people want a king. I'm not good enough for them anymore as a judge. I'm not good enough to rule over them. And God tells him, he says, listen, it's not you they're rejecting. It's me. God says, you were never meant to be the one that was the provider, protector, the leader, the lawgiver of these people. It was supposed to be me. And so God says, I'm offended that they've rejected me. They're not rejecting the judges. They're rejecting the one who sent the judges. So as Samuel and God are discussing this, God tells them, I'll give them a king, but before I do, you need to warn them what having a king is really like. You need to warn them that if they're going to depend on this human ruler instead of me, God says, look, I'm, I'm here for the people's good. I'm here for the people's uh, safety. I want to provide for them in every way. I want to do the things that a leader should do. But if they want a king, here's what it's going to be like. That king will make their sons run in front of his chariots and horses. That king is going to appoint your sons over his armies. He's going to make your children farm his fields and harvest his crops and make weapons for him. They will become the providers of his wealth. Your daughters will become his perfumers, his bakers, and cooks. He will take the best of your fields, your property, and harvest as his own. This is what a king does. He'll take the best of your servants and your animals. You will cry out for relief. And in this passage, God says, when they cry out now, in the time of judges, when they cried out, God would show up and he would deliver them. He says, when they cry out and ask for relief from a king, I'm not going to answer. That's how frustrated God is with this request for an earthly king. And he says, but if you want a king, I'll give you one. If you think this is going to be better for you to have some human ruling over you instead of me, I'll let you have what you desire. And so Samuel goes and anoints Saul. Today what we're going to be looking at is this difference between Saul and, and David. And it's a little bit tricky to kind of figure out what Saul's doing that's so problematic. Uh, Saul is 30 years old when Samuel anoints him to be king, and God chooses Saul to be king. Uh, when he chooses him to be king, he's 30 years old. He's going to eventually reign for 42 years. It's a long reign. It's a long rule over Israel. And Saul is, in many ways, very good at ruling. He's chosen because he is tall, he's handsome, he's well-respected, he's a great military leader, he's a great fighter. Uh, his son is also a warrior leader. Uh, Saul has many characteristics that are good as a leader of a, part of a nation in the ancient world. Uh, Saul is someone who in, in some ways is faithful to God, but in some ways isn't. When I was working on this lesson, I told Jeff this before we started here. When I was working on this sermon, my first draft says, and then God got tired of Saul being king and appointed David instead. And, and I was on a plane, so I didn't have my tools to really get into it and study. So my notes just said, uh, figure out why before you preach on this. And then I kept writing the sermon. 
The truth is that it's a little bit hard to figure out why God gets so frustrated with Saul. There's not some big, like, he had adultery with a woman and killed her husband moment like David has. There's not big, like, his son rebels against him and and has this chaotic season of civil war in the palace that might cause God to move on from him. David has those things. And yet throughout the whole scripture, David continues to become the man after God's own heart. David is the one whose whose line is promised to him by God will be uh, the line that the true eternal king comes from. And Saul is not. And it's tricky to figure out why. And there's a couple things that that Saul does that give us hints as to why he is the rejected king and why David becomes the promised king. On one occasion, uh, Jonathan and his armor bearer decide that they're going to attack a Philistine outpost. And they go up and they climb this hill and they go to this, this fight and they just whoop these Philistines. I mean, they just send them scattering uh, and they beat them as they're running. Uh, and Jonathan just really whoops them. And he goes back to, to his dad, Saul's camp. Uh, and what happens is the Philistines are furious about this. And so they call out all of their armies and they gather together a huge and vast Philistine army with hundreds and hundreds of chariots and charioteers and uh, infantrymen. And, and they get all the weapons and Israel doesn't even have weapons to fight them with at this point. They're having to get the Philistines to, to hire them to build their weapons. And Saul calls his army to do battle with this Philistine army. But the reality is that his army doesn't come close to what is about to fight against them. And Saul's standing here looking at his army and looking at this Philistine army. And he starts to worry that Samuel is late to offer the sacrifice before the battle. Saul, after seven days of waiting for Samuel to show up, looking at this huge army in front of him and the small army behind him, decides that he's going to take matters into his own hands. He decides that he can't wait for Samuel, the one who is appointed by God to do this, to show up and do it. And so he just goes and he builds his own altar and he sacrifices on this altar to God so that they can win the victory. You see, he has this idea that if he just is true to the ritual of of religion, if he's just true to, to following the instructions, that he'll get the outcome he desires. As soon as he finishes offering the sacrifice, Samuel walks up and he says, What have you done? What have you done? Why would you do such a thing? Why would you sacrifice to God instead of waiting for me to show up and offer the sacrifice to God in the appropriate way? And in these passages, these stories, you have to read between the lines a little bit to figure out what's going on, but you get a sense that Saul is more into the rituals than to having a trusting relationship with God. You see, he thinks, as long as I do the the ritual, as long as I have the sacrifice, I'll get the outcome I desire. You see, sometimes we do this too. Sometimes we get the idea, if I just go to church, I'll get the benefits of faith and Christianity. If I just tithe the way I'm supposed to, I'll, I'll get all the blessings that I'm supposed to. When you exalt ritual when you exalt the the actions of faith and you don't exalt the God who is behind the rituals, you're always going to end up in trouble. 
And what happens when you exalt the rituals is that you believe, it shows that you believe, that you think if you go through the motions of obedience that you can manipulate God to give you the outcomes you desire. That was Saul's fatal flaw. And it comes up in other occasions. On one occasion, he was in a battle that he didn't think he was going to do well in, and so he just sends for the Ark of the Covenant. He says, listen, if we get some of the God furniture over here, if we can get this God box and go to battle, then we'll win. He's not worried about whether God is faithful. He's not worried about going to God and asking God to do these things. He's going through the motions of obedience without the heart for God, without the faith and trust that God's going to take care of him. You see, if he really understood who God was and God's heart for his people, he would have known that the sacrifice doesn't matter, that the Ark of the Covenant doesn't matter, that the God who makes those things special is what matters. And that God's going to show up whether they go through the motions of the rituals or not. The last straw for Saul comes when, uh, on one occasion, God sends him to wipe out some of the enemies of Israel, and he's told to totally destroy uh, the people and all their possessions. And and what Saul instead does is he goes through and destroys the people and then keeps a lot of the good plunder for himself. And at the end of these multiple scenarios and situations where where Saul chooses himself over God, and the ritual over the God behind the ritual, God says, that's it. I've had enough of you. You're not going to be the king that has the true king come out of your line. Instead, I will choose another, and the eternal throne will be part of that king's line and not yours. In the pages that follow, what we see is that Saul's household is completely wiped out. Not only does his line not sit on the throne forever, but Saul's line doesn't make it even several generations past him because he wasn't the person who had a heart for God. Samuel then later goes to Jesse's house. God sends Samuel to Jesse's house and he says, it's time for you to appoint the next king. And when he gets there, He walks in and Jesse's got all of his sons out there. And Samuel walks in and he sees the first one who's tall and who's handsome. Sounds a lot like Saul. And Samuel says, surely this is the one the Lord has chosen. And God says, no, not that one. And he goes to the next son. And Samuel thinks, surely this one. God says, not that one. And he goes all the way through until he has looked at all the sons that are there in Jesse's house at that moment. And he says, God has told me that it's none of these. Is there another son that you're hiding somewhere? And Jesse says, my youngest son is out in the field tending the sheep. And Samuel says, we're not going to sit down until he gets over here. And as David comes in from the fields, Samuel says, this is the son. This is the one God has chosen. And it's not because he was tall and it's not because he was handsome. We learn later he is those things. It's not because he was strong and mighty and a great military leader. We learn later that he is those things. But God tells Samuel, choose this one because I don't look at the things people look at. I look at the heart. I look at the heart. Saul was good at all the things David is good at as a king. He's a military ruler. He's, he's someone who does lots of things good. He has all kinds of problems as well. Evil spirits come on him and he gets uh, really angry and frustrated and, and tries to kill David. And we're going to get into all of that as we move through the series. 
But the thing that David seems to have that is different from Saul is a heart that loves God. It's a heart that desires a relationship with God. It's a heart that when it makes a mistake, cries out and repents to God. It's a heart that tries to put the desires of God above the desires of self. And so in these two stories of these two kings, both of whom are good at things and both of whom have flaws, Saul seems to be going through the motions of obedience, whereas David seems to have a heart for God. And that makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. And the last thing I, I want to touch on today, and we'll get into this more next week, but here's, here's where I want to kind of impress upon this upon you, is that when David was out in the field with the sheep, he does not have any of the skills to rule a nation. He doesn't have any of the, the skills to lead a military. He doesn't have any of the things uh, that, that people would think. His resume is not kingly. If Israel had gone out and, and, and you know, called for resumes for the next king, David's resume is not getting him picked. He's a shepherd out in the fields. But God sees something in him. God sees that he has the heart. He sees that he has some of the skills and abilities that can be grown into what God needs him to be. He has the courage. He's got the faith. He's got the, the history of worshiping God, of praising God, of giving thanks to God. We see that over and over again in the Psalms and in David's songs. There is something about the people God so often chooses. God has this incredible ability to see heroes that are hiding in plain sight. To see what we consider to be underdogs, God sees that they have the circumstances and the potential to become what God needs them to be to answer his calling. There may be someone in this room or watching online today that, that has a calling that God is putting on their heart. And they might be thinking, I don't have the ability to do what God is, is putting on my heart to do. Well, here's what you need to hear today is that God has this incredible ability to take people in, in difficult circumstances with secret skills and grow them into the people who can accomplish His purposes in the world. God loves underdog stories. And when we see an underdog, we tend to think that they're underqualified. What God sees is people that have everything they need to do His task that He has for them. They just haven't stepped out in faith yet. If you're sitting here and you're listening to this and you're thinking, I, I can't be whatever God needs you to be. Think about what David would have thought the day that he was out in the field tending the sheep. Probably bored out of his mind. And a messenger comes to him and says, Samuel, the judge, the kingmaker, wants to see you. David would have certainly thought, why? When... Samuel saw David and said, I'm going to anoint you now. You are the future king of Israel. Do you think David thought to himself, well, of course I am. Of course I am. You should have seen me out last week shepherding those sheep. I was very royal out there. This isn't a surprise to anybody that they would want me to be king. In fact, I think most people would have said, 
Yeah, right. I'm going back out with the sheep. But David starts taking one step forward in faith and one step forward in faith and one step forward in faith. And God continues to use the circumstances of his life and the skills and ability that he's given him as well as the skills and abilities that David has developed. What David has done in the fields where he's been taking care of the sheep is practice his slingshot. He's practiced his prayer life. He's practiced what it means to be courageous in the face of a threat. He's practiced for hundreds and hundreds of hours how to, how to attack a tree with a sling so that he would be ready for the lion. He's practiced how to be thankful in all seasons and circumstances so that he could be thankful when tough times came later in his life and in his, his, his reign over Israel. What David was doing in the boring moments of the field was allowing God to prepare in him a king that he didn't even know he was being shaped to become. What I want you to consider is that if God has put some task in front of you, how can you right now be developing the habits and practices to prepare yourself for that moment when the bear shows up, when Goliath shows up? When a prophet shows up and says, you're going to have a job you didn't think you were ever called for, and you're going to have to do it in ways that you can't even imagine. Are you doing the little things right now in the boring moments at your job and in the car and in your home? Are you doing the little things that are going to open the door to God use you in big ways in the future? If you aren't, now's a good time to start. Because I can tell you the worst time to learn how to use a sling is when a bear shows up. It's the wrong time. The worst time to learn that you need a prayer life is when crisis strikes. The worst time to think, I need to know what God wants me to do by reading his word is when you've got a decision to make and you don't, haven't put this stuff in your heart. We need to be people that use the little moments of our life to build the habits, to become the people that God can shape into the Davids of today. The people that get called out of our schools and our offices and our homes to achieve God's purposes in the world. And it's not going to be easy. What you're going to see uh, in the coming weeks is that David's life was often very, very difficult. But in all of those sufferings and in all of those successes and all of those moments of faith and all of those moments of failure, David became the hero that nobody saw coming. He became the hero that he didn't see coming, but that God was planning for all along. God can do that in our lives too. So who is God planning for in this church, in our city? It could be you. And if you're sitting here thinking, it's not me, that's what David would have thought. It could be you. His story will tell us that God can use anybody to do what God needs to be done. If we'll just open ourselves to what God's up to in our lives and in the world. If you're here this morning and you need to respond to this message, uh, please feel free to come forward as we stand and sing.